Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So I first want to um, let you know that um, in a few minutes, in two minutes, it will be the full moon, a snow moon, I'm told, Diane told me. And you know the full moon is a symbol for enlightenment. So <laughs> I hope you're listening. Okay. Uh, 7.33 today. <clears throat> so I wanted to uh, talk tonight um, about the, the fact that we are practicing a path of happiness. <clears throat> I want to talk about joy and um, creating the conditions for awakening. Last night, Guy talked about the seven factors of awakening or enlightenment. Um, one of which is joy. Um, but to see that those factors are not only um, a natural maturation of the practice, but they can be um, cultivated consciously, and that um, by understanding how um, wholesome states uh, affect the mind and the heart, uh, you can see that what we're doing is creating the conditions for that highest kind of happiness to, um, to manifest. And Andrea, uh, um, the other night, talked about the wise efforts. Remember the four wise efforts? They were for there's over, uh, guarding against wholes unwholesome states, uh, abandoning or overcoming unwholesome states when they've arisen, cultivating wholesome states that have not yet arisen, and the fourth, maintaining, sometimes it's translated as maintaining and increasing wholesome states when they have arisen. And the reason why um, we can understand wh wise effort, uh, the reason why it's, um, it's so helpful to see that this is a path of happiness is that the Buddha said, as you cultivate wholesome states and as you um, don't feed the unwholesome ones, the more you are cultivating those wholesome states of uh, openness and love and clarity and wisdom and all the, there are I think 17 wholesome states if, I'm, if, I, can rem if I remember correctly, that they create the, the openness for awakening to emerge. But sometimes uh, we can forget that this is a path of happiness because um, suffering is 
is there so, um, so prominently in the teachings, the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there's an end to suffering, and there's a path leading to the end to suffering. That's a lot of suffering, at least. <laughs> if you read it, oh, okay, it's all about suffering and get rid of, getting rid of suffering, but really it's about cultivating happiness. And the Buddha said, go for the highest happiness and you will get all the other uh, happinesses along the way and also as you cultivate those true um, um, those qualities that open the heart and create a, a sense of well-being, they themselves uh, help that highest happiness uh, to emerge. But as, as I said, sometimes it can get lost. The Buddha was called the happy one, um, and, uh, and yet we can get um, confused by the teachings. When I first got into practice, uh, I think I said in an earlier talk, I came with a lot of suffering inside. And then when I heard the Dharma, uh, that first time was like, oh my goodness, it's really possible to not be just caught in my, my mind all the time. And I, I went for it. Actually, th there was a moment, now I'm thinking about Guy this morning with, uh, with his basketball analogy, so uh, I'll, I'll follow up on the basketball analogy. There was a moment where I had to decide whether this path was really for me in the, that first summer at Naropa. Uh, I'm a big basketball fan, as I think Guy knew that as he was saying that, that I was getting happier and happier <laughs> talking about Steph Curry. Uh, and I was a, a season ticket holder for the New York Knicks in their glory days in the early 70s. You know, Walt Frazier and Earl the Pearl Monroe was my favorite player. And I went into the... To the um, uh, class this uh, one day in that first summer and I was wearing my Knicks t-shirt and this awful thought came to me as I realized oh I'm wearing my Knicks shirt and I went up afterwards uh, after the class and I said uh, I, I need to talk with you it was the first time I ever spoke to Joseph I but I was so moved I had to say something I said I can I talk with you I was kind of in awe of him before then and he said, yes. And I said, um, I'm a, a season ticket holder to the Knicks to <laughs> in Madison Square Garden. And I just want to know, if I really get into this stuff, am I going to go to Madison Square Garden and say, nice shot, Frazier. Yeah. Good move, Havlicek. <laughs> okay. Because... I'm not ready to sign up for it, 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 it you know, if, if, if that's where it leads, you know. He gave me the perfect answer that hooked me and there was no turning back. He said, you'll probably still be just as excited, but you'll get over a loss sooner. I said, okay, sign me up. I'm going for it. Yeah. But anyway, I had this... 
um, this long, what's called the long honeymoon period, where everything was all about the Dharma and I so believed in mindfulness and I'd be telling my friends, you just have to be mindful, you just have to be mindful. They started keeping their distance from me, you know. I took me, it took me a while to get the idea, soft cell is better than hard cell. Um, but I had this tremendous love affair with the Dharma where I was doing lots and lots of retreats for, the, for about 10 years. Um, it was basically, I'd live my life, but it was mostly so I could go deeper in my practice. And some of you might be in the middle of that right now where there's an outer life and an inner exploration, an inner life. And um, it was just so exciting. And uh, I so believed in, in the practice and in the process. Uh, somewhere along the line, I became very serious about my practice, dead serious about my practice with the emphasis on the dead. <laughs> and I lost my enthusiasm and I, um, I had some misunderstandings about, about practice that, um, that can easily happen. And uh, for a period I really, I lost my joy uh, and I have a lot of, I, I, I have a kind of, can be intense and passionate about things. Fortunately, I got into something that, passionately, that cooled a little bit of my passion. But um, I lost some joy. And this is not so uncommon. Uh, this is from Ajahn Sumedho, who I think we've quoted before. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. <laughs> or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. <laughs> this has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of reality. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. And there are some teachings that can be interpreted in ways that, uh, that feed this sense of overcoming suffering and not seeing the beauty and the, the powerful tools for awakening joy and well-being uh, in us. I thought I'd just share a couple that you can 
understand how this, this misapprehension can arise. One quality of mind and heart that's a very important and profound understanding and quality uh, is uh, known as samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A, samvega, and, or samvega. And this is the um, one definition. This is uh, uh, Ajahn uh, Tanisaro's definition. Samvega, the, oppress- the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and the meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. You read that and say, whoa, okay, get me out of here as fast as I can. Now this is a really um, profound understanding, but you can easily uh, see how one can say, oh, this, let's get out of here right now and um, this, this life is meaningless. But really the, the important thing to see in that definition, realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. There's another way to see this life but you can hear, oh, this is, a, this is meaningless, let me get out of here. Another important um, understanding or perspective or um, um, process, part of the awakening process, is um, a perspective or a, an experience called nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, nibida, which um, has been translated, depends on what translation you hear. And this is one translation. One should abide in the utter disgust for the aggregates. Nibida translated as utter disgust in this translation. The aggregates being this mind-body process, I think it's been mentioned here, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, the way that the Buddha described who we are, what we are, this mind-body process. And here it's saying you should abide in utter disgust for the aggregates. Or another um, um, translation, one should have um, revulsion towards the aggregates. You read that and say, oh my goodness, I've been trying so hard to look in the mirror and not wince, which I did for much of my earlier years, you know. And here they're saying, disgust for the aggregates. But those are the mm, translations that can throw you off and really more accurately, a better translation, and there's a beautiful essay by uh, Andy Olinsky uh, on Nibida, uh, who, who points this out, that it really means that one should develop a disenchantment with regard to the aggregates. Disenchantment, not being enchanted 
by this mind and body. Either this one or the ones around us. So when you see through that and you've broken the spell, that's a very profound understanding. But when you see utter disgust or revulsion, there's a whole different spin on it. So you can see, depends on the translations and different ways that uh, you understand the teachings. Um, the Buddha was called the happy one. And there are many flavors of happiness that he spoke of. So after I went through this period where I did lose my aliveness and my, my joy, um, I fortunately, instead of turning away from the teachings, I wanted to know what did the Buddha say about happiness? Why was he called the happy one? And is it only about freedom when you are completely enlightened? Or is there... Uh, a way to access happiness along the way. And there's beautiful teachings in the, uh, in the canon, in the Buddha's uh, teaching, that I wanted to take a look and just see, well, w what did he say? And that's when I became so interested and as I reclaimed my joy. The Dalai Lama starts out his, uh, his wonderful book, The Art of Happiness, with this line, the purpose of life is to be happy. The purpose of life is to be happy. Because if you have true happiness, true happiness, then you are, um, allowing all the beautiful qualities that you've been gifted with that manifest through you to be expressed and shared. Everybody wins from your own well-being. So I did um, an, an, an intense uh, exploration into happiness and uh, makes me happy to share it. Um, so, some things to understand. First of all, um, we all want to be happy. Every one of us, I think it was mentioned here. Did I, did I uh, ask this before about uh, being happy? Anyone who doesn't want to be happy? Did I talk about that here? No, no. Is, Anybody who doesn't want to be happy? We all want to be happy. And if you're somebody who feels like saying, yeah, I like being grumpy, but you're holding your hand down, that's just your way of being happy. <laughs> Whatever turns you on. But really, everything that you do if you take, take a look, don't take my word for it. The Buddha said, Ehipasako, come and see for yourself. So check it out. When I look, everything that we do is motivated in some way because we think it will make us feel a bit better 
or make us feel less bad. Even if we are very misguided and thinking, oh, this is gonna do it, and then later we say, oh, what was I thinking? The impulse, the short-term impulse is, oh, this is gonna feel better, this is gonna feel good. So it's important to understand where true happiness lies, but to see that there's something in you that's been rooting for your well-being all the time. And not to, not to play small and, oh no, I, I can't really give myself that, that happiness. You're continually uh, motivated by that. <clears throat> and sometimes, so this is just accessing that place and seeing where our, our true happiness lies. But sometimes we can sabotage ourselves. Oh, I don't deserve it. Or there's so much suffering going on, how can I let myself be happy while there's suffering? And that's a very you know, understandable um, thought to come through our minds. And I, I wanted to share with you, particularly these days, um, where there's so much uncertainty and there's so much uh, potential for real suffering and so many who, um, who are frightened and um, wondering um, how things are going to unfold, there can be this sense of, oh gosh, can I let myself sit here for one or two months and just find calm when there's a lot of work to do? Um, or can I just let myself, even in my daily life, let myself feel good while there's all this tension and, and um, ignorance? And so I wanted to read to you a, a passage that I, I love um, from uh, Howard Zinn, the um, uh, father-in-law of John Kabat-Zinn, by the way, and uh, somebody who um, gave the unwhitewashed history. Did I read this here before? No, okay. I gave another talk recently, so. Uh, about about this idea of letting ourselves feel happiness and well-being. And he wrote The People's History of the United States the, uh, that told the whole story. But this is what he says in this essay called The Optimism of Uncertainty. He says, an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic, it's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of a world in a different direction. So to not hold back and think, oh well, can I let myself feel as much well-being as is available? 
yeah, don't hold back. We need your joy. We need your aliveness and love of, of life. <clears throat> so I took a look and saw um, a few teachings that really have spoken to me uh, of the Buddha's um, teachings on happiness and well-being. One being that um, wise effort where he says not only to cultivate wholesome states, but when they're here to maintain and increase wholesome states. He said that this is a good thing. You might say, gosh, that, that, that sounds like you can get attached. Is it okay to increase the wholesome state? Well, here's the tricky part. If you're having a wholesome state and you say, oh, turn it up, turn up the jets. How do I keep it here? You've just gotten into grasping and it's turned into an unwholesome state because any state of contraction, of wanting, of holding, like I, I think I shared in the other talk, when you're contracted, it is, um, it's suffering. And wholesome states, kusala, are states of expansion. So you can't try to hold on to a wholesome state to maintain and increase it. No. But you can be really present for it, which is uh, the essence of what I wanted to remind us here tonight. We've talked about working with hindrances. We've talked about overcoming our you know, self-judgment or making friends with our mind or being, uh, learning how to uh, open up to the difficult. But that's only half the story. You've probably had one or two moments that were pleasant since you've been here, I hope. Probably many moments. In fact, all the times, a lot of times people say, I don't know about this joy stuff. Um, I'll just take not being miserable. Thank you. And I'll say, okay, notice the moments that you're not miserable. Because they're really okay. You've probably had a lot of okay moments. That's a good place to start. Notice, oh, this is an okay moment. Oh, what does okayness feel like? Oh, this is really okay. Mm. Oh, and now my heart is open and I'm, th this metta is, is real. Oh, and now there's a sense of clarity. Oh, this feels good. And now here's calm. It's okay to make it the object of your practice. In fact, it's skillful. That's how you maintain and increase the wholesome state. Not by grasping after it, but simply not missing it. The Buddha, in one of his uh, discourses, he gives the example, he says, if you're in the middle of um, a generous act, he says, think to yourself, 
oh, I'm being generous now. This is his recommendation. He's not saying, check it out, you know. <laughs> Pretty generous guy, you know. Because that is just reifying a sense of self. But he is saying, notice how good it feels for generosity to move through me. Oh, it feels so good. And with that wholesome state, he says there is a gladness that's connected with that wholesome state. And in this one discourse, this is Majima 99 for those who like to look these things up. He says um, that gladness connected with the wholesome I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. And he says, that gladness, um, one delights in the meaning, delights in the truth, one gains inspiration in the Dhamma. Just by not missing that feeling of uplift that moves us when we're uh, when we're in the middle of a wholesome state. So the idea is to notice that gladness. You know, when, you, uh, when you think about it, um, you're experiencing that probably you know, pretty frequently. It's not that you've got to do bells and whistles and cartwheels and oh my God, I'm gonna just explode because of radiant sunshine. No, just even a feeling of, oh, my heart is touched right now. There's a, a sweet tenderness there. Notice that, don't miss it. Mm, oh, this is what a tender heart is like. And let yourself really savor it, not uh-oh, I better not get attached because it's just going to go, so let's go on to the next thing. Because sometimes people have that idea, oh, I'd, I shouldn't get attached. Yeah, you don't want to get attached, but don't miss the sweetness of that moment, the gladness connected with the wholesome. Rick Hansen, who uh, writes books on neuroscience and, uh, and teaches here at Spirit Rock, he says... Um, to take in the good that it has a um, profound effect on your, uh, your brain plasticity. He says, if you're in the middle of a wholesome moment and there's that gladness, he suggests paying attention for 15 seconds, letting it be the object of your, um, uh, of your mindfulness and this is his formula. He says, 15 seconds, six times a day. I know, 90 seconds of well-being if you can handle it. You, know. <laughs> you do that over a two-week period and you'll notice probably a shift in your well-being, both because you're deepening the neural pathways, but also you're starting to get into the habit of not missing the good and taking it in, which is the key because it takes some practice to take in the good. 
we're very used to looking for what can go wrong and uh, this amygdala in our brains, this almond-shaped cluster of neurons that scans the horizon for what can go wrong. And it's a good thing that we have it, but it gets overactive, particularly under stress, and we tend to notice what might go wrong and miss what can go right often. Unless you've practiced it. I, I read one study that said it takes seven uh, encounters, positive encounters, after a negative encounter for most people. They get a, a negative encounter, somebody snaps at them, or there's some kind of um, kerfuffle uh, interaction, and we're kind of on edge. And seven people saying, hi, how are you? Nice to see you. You know, you start to come back to stasis from, for many people. Unless you've been practicing noticing what's good. Because we have this thing called a confirmation bias where you will see what you look for. And if you're looking for how everything is, life is dangerous and people are going to disappoint you, then that's what your brain will pick up and will likely miss if you, uh, uh, the other hypothesis that might say, oh, life is amazing and people uh, there's a goodness in people if we, can, if we can access it. So it takes some practice to look for the good. And that's why connecting with those, the gladness connected with the wholesome, we're training ourselves to, um, to deepen those states and to not miss them. And then the, so that's the two particular teachings. One, noticing wholesome states or cultivating wholesome states to noticing the gladness that's, that accompanies them. And then three, uh, in one discourse, the Buddha says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? In modern neuroscience, the axiom is neurons that fire together, wire together. That's how it, how it works. So over the course of practicing, noticing the good, and really letting yourself take it in and have it register, you're starting to incline the mind in that direction, which is one of the reasons the Buddha said, overcome the unwholesome and keep on practicing opening to the wholesome. Develop it, and when it's here, don't miss it. Really take it in. Because in all of those states, all of those wholesome states are states of opening and expansion. And what they do is um, the mind gets more spacious, the heart gets more open, we can see more clearly, we find we trust more in life, and there is there are the conditions that are um, developing that allow for that awakening. Okay, so given that, that if we cultivate wholesome states, don't miss 
that gladness that's connected with them, not getting attached, but not missing it. And over time, inclining the mind towards the wholesome and away from the unwholesome. This is what we're doing here. There are certain, there are a number of wholesome states that the Buddha recommended to cultivate that you can apply this principle to. Oh, I'll cultivate the state and when it's here, really be here for it. And over time, start to incline that way. So uh, I've taken a look at some different t wholesome states and there, were, there have been 10 that particularly um, have spoken to me in the teachings. There's more, but these are ones that I found both in practice and also in daily life uh, can be cultivated that when you are in the middle of them, ah, let yourself enjoy them, experiencing them. So I'll, I'll mention just a few that you can bring into your, your practice. The first one um, is having the intention for well-being. I think I spoke about intention, yeah, it was before when we did the, um, uh, the instructions on intention, that intention is the basis of all karma. And having an intention for deepening well-being, for an intention for happiness, and just naming it, I really do want to go for this, um, without grasping, but that I'm facing in the direction of greater and greater happiness. This is a key decision in your life. In the Eightfold Path, you, if you go past the uh, gate and you see the, the wheel with the eight, um, uh, the eight spokes on it, wise intention is the second in the Eightfold Path. First there's wise understanding where you see where what leads to happiness and what leads to suffering. And then there's wise intention where you say, I'm going for it. For me, hearing Joseph then all those years ago, and there was something in me that said, I'm going for this. So to have that decision, and you've obviously made it in to some degree, why would you sign up for a month or two of practice if you didn't sense that this is gonna lead to something positive for you? But to actually put your happiness consciously in the forefront, not only in a refined meditative state, but in our, in our life, that is a very profound decision. And so many of us, I'm sure many people can attest to this, uh, we sabotage ourselves, as I said, oh, do I deserve to be happy and, and have a, a self-critical mind? Anybody ever find some self-judgment in their, in their practice? You know, it's amazing how we can be so hard on ourselves thinking, oh, well, that's gonna get me going better. Maybe you don't have that thought consciously, but it's a habit that I don't deserve to be happy or for whatever reason, it's hard to give ourselves that. But to say, I really want true well-being can start to um, be a source of, of 
powerful metta practice where you say, oh, yes, dear, you're doing the best you can and starting to be kind to yourself. I hope by now you've seen how profound it is when there's moments of kindness instead of the self-judgment. So having the intention to be happy is really the key. And I'll share with you one story of somebody who made this intention. Let's see. I can find it. Just bear with me for a moment. Don't have it. I'll tell you the story. <laughs> um, there's two actually, but I'll just, uh, one is um, from Martin Seligman who um, wrote the book Authentic Happiness and Positive Psychology. It's the Bible of positive psychology, and he, which has been a, a whole movement in the last 20 years. Instead of abnormal psychology where I was a psych major and you read the, the psych, abnormal psych textbook, and each, each chapter, yep, I've got that neurosis, yep, <laughs> I've got that psychosis, I've got that, yep, that's me too. And it was radical when he said, oh, we might start looking at well-being and health. And he tells the story, he says, uh, uh, the moment where he, that positive psychology started was, um, when he was in the garden with his daughter, uh, Nikki, five-year-old, uh, and he said, we were weeding in the garden, and he had just become president of the American Psychological Association, so he had some impact. And he says, uh, I write books about children, but uh, I have to admit I'm not all that good with them. And when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm trying to get the weeding done, but Nikki was throwing the weeds up in the air and having a grand time, and I yelled at her. And he says, uh, she walked away, and then after a while came back and said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. <laughs> yes, Nikki, I said. And she said, Daddy, mm, from the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. And when I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. And that was the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> and if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. <laughs> and when he heard that, he said, she hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. It was an epiphany. And she sa he said, I spent 50 years as a, uh, as, as, as a grouch as, uh, with wet weather and the last 10 is a, a walking nimbus cloud in a household full of sunshine. And he said, Every, um, my happiness was not because of my grumpiness but in spite of it. And in that moment, I resolved to change. 
and that was the start of the positive psychology movement. He decided to change. That was the key. So before we go on, I just uh, invite you for a moment to go inside and just get in touch with that place that does really want to be happy, that's rooting for you. And just imagine getting better and better at seeing all the good inside and in your life and in life. And just imagine a month from now or two months from now, if you really have this as a, a part of your practice or a year from now or two, that more and more you open up to all the good as a support for your true well-being. Just imagine what that might look like or feel like. Imagine how it would be for everybody else in your life. And if it seems like a worthwhile project, see if you can get in touch with the intention to go for it. To go for true well-being inside, not just for yourself, but as a gift to everyone you know. Because that intention is has a power to it. It's not about goal. It's about inclining the mind and showing up and doing your part to bring that about and just letting life support you in that. But as, as the Tibetans say, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. And to put your own well-being in the center and seeing it as a gift to the world, this is a really important decision. Okay, if you'd like, you can open your eyes. So that intention, as in the Eightfold Path, sets you on that direction towards doing what you can to cultivate wholesome states, to bring out the best in you and to, in the process, learn how to overcome the unwholesome. That's part of being human. <clears throat> so the second wholesome state is mindfulness. That, as the Buddha said, this is the most direct way to cultivate true well-being. Because mindfulness has a unique property of all the mental factors, and there's 52 mental factors. It's kind of like the, the deck that you're, we're all dealt, right? Some unwholesome, some wholesome, some uh, universal. Mindfulness is the one factor that weakens all the unwholesome states and strengthens all the wholesome states. That's pretty amazing. All you have to do is be mindful. That's, that's one of the, the most amazing 
uh, realizations of the Buddha, oh, this is something anyone can do as you cultivate mindfulness, not grasping at the pleasant or pushing away the unpleasant or identifying with your experience, you are weakening unwholesome states and cultivating wholesome states. So mindfulness is the key and it feels good, doesn't it? This is, uh, I do have this one from uh, Mary Oliver, mindful, maybe you're familiar with this. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the oceans shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. That's what we're doing here. We're looking at the ordinary and perhaps you've seen, you know, falling in love with a, with a plant or, uh, or a, a, a turkey or whatever, you know, that when you start to see with a deeper vision, it's all quite amazing. And that goes for seeing the hard stuff too. So one of the the important qualities to understand about practice is mindfulness applied to the difficult is a path to joy. I think I, I might have mentioned it here. One of the Buddha's teachings is um, transcendental dependent arising. Has it been talked about? Um, so transcendental dependent arising starts out suffering can be a causative factor for faith to arise. Faith can lead to gladness. Gladness can lead to joy, can lead to happiness and contentment, peace, all the way to full awakening. But it starts out that suffering can lead to faith. Not, not necessarily, but it can. How many people have been motivated by their own pain or sorrow or suffering to look for answers that turn them in the direction of the Dharma? Anybody? Yeah, that's how it works. If you see clearly, you can use all of your pain or if you have the tools, you can use your pain and your sorrow to keep learning and growing whether it's holding it with compassion or learning places that you might get caught or unconscious. Every moment counts. That's what we're doing here. Every moment counts when you hold the difficult with that kind of um, loving presence or kind awareness. And it's possible to change. And I, actually I wanted to share with you a story of someone 
who did change, who didn't even know about practice, but that um, going from very difficult circumstances saw the light and decided to change. And this is a, a, a beautiful um, story of this fellow, Sean Kyler. You can go on YouTube and see his valedictorian speech from the Hudson Link for Higher Education and Mercy College. This is um, a um, higher education project that, um, that they give to inmates in jails. And he was in jail. Uh, he had been um, hanging around with gangs and uh, got into some very, very awful things and was actually uh, in jail for murder. But in the process, he was turn, he decided to turn, he was awakened and turned to the right direction. And this is part of his valedictorian speech. Turning your deepest pain and suffering into something beneficial for all. He says, we come here to celebrate achievement over failure, perseverance over hesitancy, better tomorrows over the worst of our yesterdays, we're no longer the people we were when we, first took our when we first took our step on this academic journey. We do not perceive or experience the world in the same manner we once did. Our cognitive ability as well as our behavior has suddenly undergone a change, a transformation. This transformation is not so much a metamorphosis into someone new, but actually a reconnection to our authentic self. That person we were before and our response to life situations detoured us from the socially acceptable path to success. And he goes on, I'll just share a little bit of the, the backstory besides his words. He always loved school, and, but he was shy about succeeding in it because of peer pressure. In adolescence, he'd get good grades, but he'd hide them from his friends lying to them or saying he just got lucky so that they continued to accept him. At some point, he says, my faulty thinking turned into my reality and my academic pursuit was left on the side of the road. With my new reality, the acceptance of my friends became the most important thing to me. I was blinded by the desire to be accepted and ultimately I became a follower. I had to live with shame for 21 years until life presented me with an opportunity to mend my mother's broken heart and a chance to rectify my misplaced values and misplaced loyalty and my faulty thinking. This college gave me a chance to ask for mercy. And this is the thing that turned him around when he came in. One professor asked him, how do you plan to touch the world? my answer became clear and is now using this experience to help as many people as I can to taste education's sweet elixir. One teacher, he said, told him, any great change must expect opposition because it shakes the foundation of privilege. And he thanked another teacher whose solid toughness provided the discipline he needed not to fall short. And then he says, I fully accept the philosophy 
that in order to change a person's behavior, you must first change the way that person thinks. And to his fellow graduates, he says, today signifies the beginning of our duty to use this education to better not only ourselves, but humanity. Our communities need us to help save our younger generation. It's obligatory that we respond. We must never forget that our supporters have extended charity to us, so it's incumbent upon us to extend even more charity to others. We can no longer sit idly by. We're now beacons of light that must steer those lost in the dark to the shores of positivity that comes from education. We are now reconnected to our authentic self. It's time to let that person shine, to let that person reach for the stars and touch the world. And then he finishes his address by quoting uh, an essay that became his beacon called Anyway, a tribute to Mother Teresa. And then he put it in his own words. He says, people are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you'll win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and frank, people may cheat you, but be honest anyway. What you spend years building, someone can destroy overnight, but we have to build anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. We're gonna do good anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. We're gonna be happy anyway. If you give the world the best you have, it might never be enough, but we're gonna give the best we can anyway. Cause you see in the final analysis, it's between you and yourself, your God. It was never between you and them anyway. So there's somebody who used his own pain and suffering and turned around just by making that decision. So there's, there's hope for all of us. It's deciding to see the good inside and outside. And one last wholesome state that uh, to keep in mind that's a direct um, way to open up our container so we can process all the dukkha as well is gratitude. We're, we've been amazingly blessed. Everybody here has some really extraordinary karma. It's said that to hear the teachings is amazingly good karma. To be able to practice them is extraordinary karma. Of all the possible expressions of life on this planet, to be born human, to hear the teachings and to practice, amazing good karma. Don't miss that. Don't miss as the Buddha says, to be content and grateful, this is a blessing supreme. And if you open up to all the good inside and outside, you'll 
be more able to hold all the challenges that are just part of life. And any time that you're practicing and you're feeling this moment of well-being, don't miss it. Don't be busy saying, oh, it's just going to pass. Or, oh, but I have so much dukkha inside. Right now, connect with the amazing moment that's here in front of you that is a sacred moment worthy of your attention. I'll, I'll close with um, a favorite passage of, of mine from Shantideva about this, where he says, as a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death. The treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life. The bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life. The cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated. The sun that dispels darkness. The butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So let's just sit for a moment. As a blind person feels upon finding a, a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. Thank you for your attention.